Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Jason, you know what they say about people who treat other people bad on the way up? Yeah, Bill, you get to treat them bad on the way back down, too. It's great. You get two chances to rough them up. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1988 holiday classic Scrooged, starring Bill Murray, Karen Allen, and Alfred Woodard. Directed by Richard Donner, this movie is rated PG-13 with a running time of 1 hour and 41 minutes. Scrooge was nominated for one Oscar, Best Makeup. This is our final episode of Season 2. Where does the time go, Jason? Oh my goodness, I can't believe we are in wrap-up mode. Man, it's gone by so fast because we've had an absolute blast. This is a thrill to be able to do this. We are extremely grateful and extremely blessed. So a little sad that the the year's over already, but I'm already looking forward to the next season, my friend. Yes. So uh, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. High-spirited hijinks on Christmas Eve put Frank Cross, Bill Murray, in a ghostly time warp in this hilarious takeoff of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Cross, who has made the meteoric rise from the depths of the mailroom to TV network president, is mean, nasty, uncaring, unforgiving, and has a sadistic sense of humor. Perfect qualities for a modern-day Scrooge. Before the night is over, he'll be visited by a maniacal New York cab driver from the past, a present-day fairy who's into pratfalls, and finally, a ghoulish, seven-foot headless messenger from the future. Bill Murray is back among the ghosts. Only this time, it's three against one. Scrooged! Hey, Bill Bant? Yes? Are you ready to talk about Scrooged from 1988? This is our actual Christmas-themed... Well, no, I... God, I mean, this is our Christmas, second Christmas movie. So this is two Christmas movies. Right? Yeah, I know. We didn't do any last year, did we? I don't think so. So we're making up for the fact we didn't do one last year. So we're doing two this right, year. Right, right. I guess that's how right. we're doing it. Yeah, that was What's in the Box. And as always, let's move on to our earliest memories. What are some of your earliest memories of Scrooge, Jason? I'll tell you, Bill Bant. The reality is that I only saw this movie once. And I just don't have much of a recollection of it. I don't know where or how or who I was with, but of course I recall the fact that it was an 80s modern take on A Christmas Carol and that Bill Murray's character is an angry bah humbug jerk, a.k.a. the modern day Scrooge, and that he worked in the TV business. But that's about it. Now, of course, seeing the VHS box and seeing the cast list, I did have an inkling of Carol Kane being, you know, pretty funny in this and that's all I got, man. I mean, I'll be honest, I just don't have a nostalgic attachment to this film, as many do, as a holiday film. Although, one vague memory is the fact that I recall this movie just being okay for me. So, I was looking forward to this rewatch to see if I would have a different modern day review. And that's kind of sort of what we do on this podcast, Bill Bant. What are your earliest memories of Scrooged? Okay, I know I did not see this in the theater. Um, This was definitely a rental. I remember when this came out, all the talk about Carol Kane as the ghost of Christmas present, that she stole the movie. Um, I remember, and this is something I would do, 
we do the Siskel and Ebert because that, that was a big thing for me. I was always excited to watch that on Saturdays, especially when movies were coming out, because back then it was very rare I would see a movie opening night. So I would always have the expectation in my mind of what they were going to review the movie. Mm-hmm. And then I re- remember watching this episode thinking, oh, this is going to be two thumbs up. You know, it's got Bill Murray in it. It's everybody's talking about Carol Kane and Bobcat Goldthwait. And yeah, they weren't that impressed with the movie. So I was like, okay. Right. And it did so-so at the box office, and we'll get into that also. And same thing as you. I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. Things that stand out was uh, Herman, the homeless guy, who they find frozen into the sewer. That always, that sure. for some reason, sticks out of all the things. Bobcat, I think it was the first time you kind of saw, he was not doing his uh, Bobcat Goldthwait stand-up persona. So that was kind of interesting. And then him chasing Bill Murray around with a shotgun. Um, I would just remember the scene from the commercial or trailer of the giant hand of the ghost of Christmas future coming into the scene. Sure. And then Bill Murray having that line like, oh, what a day I'm having. So those are the things that really stood out. And the same as you. I would watch this on TV. I would catch bits and pieces all the time. I don't remember the last time I've seen this all the way through. So many people love this movie. Let's go back. Let me watch it. See if I'm missing something. You know, when you rent a movie especially a holiday movie and it's not holiday season that takes a little bit out of it. You know, you kind of want to watch your holiday movies during the actual holiday. Makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. you you want to be in the spirit, right? Right. So you know, here we are. It's around the holidays. Let's watch, see how it turns out and we'll go from there. So yeah, I didn't have that much in terms of earliest memories either. Copy that. All right. Good stuff, man. Are we going to move on then to our initial thoughts? Yes, Are we going to sir. tell our audience what we thought about this movie today? Yes, go ahead. Go for it. Well, I do like to start with a couple of our main players, and I've decided to highlight Bill Murray and Karen Allen. And of course, our star, Bill Murray, who plays the main character, Frank Cross. Well, Murray is known for his deadpan style of comedy. He rose to fame with Saturday Night Live in the late 70s. Then he was in the feature film Meatballs in 1979. And moving on to his 80s snapshot, he appeared in Caddyshack and Stripes, Tootsie, Ghostbusters, Scrooged. Then in the 90s, he goes on to do What About Bob, Groundhog Day, Kingpin, The Man Who Knew Too Little. He was also known for doing a few Wes Anderson-directed films, such as Rushmore, The Royal Tenenbaums, and The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, as well as my personal favorite, Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation from 2003, which earned him a Best Actor nomination. little fun trivia about Bill Murray. He accidentally broke Robert De Niro's nose during the filming of Mad Dog and Glory in 1993. He was bitten by the Groundhog twice on the Groundhog Day set back in 1992. And then also, this is maybe widely known, he is a diehard Chicago Cubs fan. I had to throw that in there, being a Chicago guy. During the Cubs playoff run in 2003, he was on location in Italy, but he had it written into his contract that he'd get a satellite feed of the playoffs. True Chicago Cubs fan. Now, as for Karen Allen, who plays Claire Phillips, who runs the homeless shelter in this film and is the love interest of Frank. Well, Allen is known for being an American film and stage actress. After she had made her film debut in Animal House in 1978, she was also in Cruising in 1980, then became best known, of course, for her portrayal as Marion Ravenwood opposite Harrison Ford in Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981. She also co-starred in Starman in 1984 and Scrooged here in 88. She did have some performances on Broadway. She continues to work in film to this day. A little trivia about her. You know what, Bill? She overcame temporary blindness caused by, bear with me, 
folks, I'm going to try and pronounce this, this condition that she had, keratoconjunctivitis. Okay, conjunctivitis. This was back in 1978. She later won major theater awards for playing a blind woman in Monday Before the Miracle and The Miracle Worker. Uh, she was also considered for the role of Princess Leia Organa in Star Wars, 1977. She's appeared in four films that have been selected for the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. These films considered being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Those films being National Lampoon's Animal House, then Manhattan, then Raiders Lost Ark, and Malcolm X. There you have it. So a couple of our main players in Scrooge. Hey, this movie is directed by Richard Donner. Yeah. Yeah. As in the director of Superman, The Goonies, and Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Here's an initial thought for you. The first half an hour of this film is pretty much a Bill Murray showcase. Slightly amusing, but it's dark, sarcastic, dry, and mean. I think what makes this feel slightly askew for me, Bill Bant, is the fact that Bill Murray is naturally funny. He's a goof. He's charming. And Frank Cross, character he portrays in this film, is supposed to be a downright Scrooge in a suit. Of course. Makes sense. That's it. But he's more of a sadist in a suit. And that was what's weird for me in this, is that it took me a while to figure it out, Bill, actually, because I was like, what is it that's just not vibing with me? And I'm going to ask you a question right from the start here, Bill. Is Scrooge in the original A Christmas Carol, right? He's not a nice guy. Correct. He's not nice to his employees, not nice to the people around him. He hates Christmas. But does he have a sadistic nature about him? Do you recall that from no. any of the... Okay. I don't recall that either. I could be mistaken or we could be mistaken, but I don't think so. This was a choice in this film. And look, it's kind of funny because there's some humor because it's Bill Murray, but it doesn't work for me or my taste, I guess. I don't guess. It just didn't work for me. So... It's one thing if he loathes Christmas and is surrounded by all things Christmas, which would just continuously annoy him. But this movie is just kind of stark. And regarding the sadistic nature of it, it's one thing to be a bah humbug, but to relish in someone else's pain or despair is slightly off-putting. Look, listeners, our audience, I understand it's a comedy. I get it. But it was off to me. Part of what was off for me is the pacing and the timing. It's slightly off in between jokes. It's strangely quiet. I don't know. Either mm, uh, just needed to be quicker. Part of the problem was a lot of the jokes aren't really landing for me. And it shows you that you can write funny. You can write funny lines. I mean, I read the quotes, doing the research and writing the quotes down. And they're funny on paper, but it proves that it takes the right direction, editing, and timing to make it funny in the visual medium. Here's a thought, Bill Bant. It's a half an hour into this movie. Yes, Murray had been visited by the ghost of his past dead boss, but it's a half an hour before the first ghost even visits him. So it's a lot of this dark comedy that leads up to that, which wasn't working for me. I don't know if I was already over it by that point, and the ghosts haven't even visited him yet. The main three ghosts. On a positive side, I like Karen Allen in this. Seven years after Raiders, she looks great. Her smile lights up the room. She's really vibrant. I love Alfre Woodard in this. Her storyline with her son, who's the Tiny Tim role, 
His name was Kelvin in this film. He doesn't speak because of a tragedy and the trauma of witnessing his father's death years earlier. All that works for me. Definitely sympathetic. Alfred Woodard is such a natural, warm, strong, likable actress. Her scenes with her son and her other children making the best with the little that they have is great. She represents the real Christmas spirit, of course, in this film. Thus, for me, the women in this film are the saviors, not so much Bill Murray. The film is loud, obnoxious, and after doing the research, it seems there may be a reason for that, which I'm sure we'll get into later. So I don't know about this movie. It's okay. Maybe it's just not for me. Look at the poster. There's nothing Christmassy about it. It's weird, but it points out another issue I have at the heart of this, which is tonality. This is a comedy, but it feels more sinister. The poster is Bill Murray in a suit and a skeleton hand lighting a cigar with the city skyline in the background, the moon. There's no Christmas, they think. I'm like, something's off. I, I just don't want to be a Scrooge about Scrooge, like I said. But here, hey, did you know A Christmas Carol, the novella by Charles Dickens, upon which this is based, of course, was published in 1843? I know I'm kind of skipping ahead to That's okay. trivia, I guess. But 18 freaking 43. I just want to end on a positive note. This is a story that stands the test of time, which is kind of cool. Right. And anyway. this is over 150 different adaptions of the story. So this is just one yes. of them. So if you don't like this one, you can watch one of the other 149. Hey, it's just this is just one guy's opinion, but we're about to get Bill Bant's initial thoughts. Okay. Jason, we're kind of on the same page on this. I didn't like, and I get it. He's supposed to play a Scrooge type character, but I didn't like the character. He somehow pulled this off in Groundhog Day. Like that character I liked, mm. but it's almost the same. He perfected it in Groundhog Day. I liked all the other characters in this movie. This is certainly one of those movies, if you tell me you love it, I'm not going to argue with you. If you tell me you hate it, I totally see where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But with all that being said, the ending gets me every time. When he does the speech, it got me. Okay. I'll talk about that in, in favorite scenes. I thought the effects were really cool. Agreed. But yeah, this one does not do it for me at all, to be honest. It's just okay. It, just like you, it takes too long to get going. And then you have John Glover in the movie. I felt like he was totally wasted. I, I couldn't agree more. I don't hate it, but I think this is one of those movies I can only watch in pieces. And then I can walk away. Mm, okay. I don't need to watch it from very beginning to very end. There was a lot I did not remember, which I guess is not too surprising. It was weird because, you know, it opens up with the Santa with the day the reindeer died spoof. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was kind of funny. I thought that was a neat premise. And then it does a commercial for Robert Goulet on the Bayou. I was like, OK, right. that's kind of humorous. But like you said, then it just gets too dark. If it stayed with that tone of humor in the beginning, I think it would have been OK with it. The fact that he runs a promo that kills someone and he revels in it. That's not Scrooge. That's not Ebenezer. Ebenezer is all just about making bank. Right. And being powerful Agreed. and not sharing. He's just greedy. Yes. The original character. Right. Yeah. So this interpretation of it really doesn't do that much for me. Just like what you said, when the other characters came on screen, I was more interested in seeing them and see what they were doing than what Bill Murray was doing. Well said. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. I agree with everything you said, except for the, the big speech at the end. And we'll talk about that. I'd like moments within it. It's not the whole speech. Right. At the beginning, I thought he was all over the place. And then... He kind of focused, and that's what I liked. Right. Okay. I won't argue with you on that point. I'm glad you made the comp of his character and performance between this film and Groundhog Day, kind of being that cynical type and also a bit of a jerk, right? Not necessarily a warm-hearted human being, but there's a sinister and sadistic element to this 
that just didn't work, that they were trying to make funny or banking on the fact that Bill Murray could make it funny, but it lacks any kind of charm in that. Like he's not kind of a point of no return. Once he goes to that, he crosses a certain line, he becomes just mean spirited. He's no longer charming, no matter what he does, because the subject matter is not funny. There's nothing you can do to make the dark that sort of sadistic stuff funny when it's relishing in somebody else's downfall. Yeah. This was a strange experience. This was a unique viewing experience, I think, for both of us. And I can say at least for myself, because I wasn't sure how to feel about this. It wasn't the worst movie by any stretch of the imagination that I've ever seen. It's not terrible. It was just like, oh, I'm not laughing out loud. And that's a problem. Are there parts that are entertaining? Sure. I've got favorite scenes. We're about to get into them. But- Overall, I was like, okay, I don't need to revisit this anytime soon. There's something you said. I never laughed. I never laughed. Not once. I kind of did the, you know, hmm, maybe once in a while or smiled on the inside, but never laughed out loud. No. I mean, you think of his performance in Stripes, Ghostbusters. I know you haven't seen Meatballs. That's the character I like. That's the Bill Murray I like. I'm about to get into that. 100%. You took the words out of my mouth. All right, uh, let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from Scrooged? Well, yes, let's get into it. We liked some stuff about this movie. Absolutely. Bill, you already brought it up. I am going to just talk about the beginning of this film. It's the cold open. It's what I'm calling Lee Majors in The Night the Reindeer Died. I love this great cold open for the film. Love this take. Turning the North Pole and Santa's Workshop into the centerpiece for an 80s action TV movie starring Lee Majors. It's funny because it obviously was of the time, meaning we have Richard Donner directing this, who he'd done Lethal Weapon. Die Hard had come out the same year, 1988. So it's a bit self-aware and winking at the audience, which Bill Bant, I'm glad you kind of said this, if they had carried that theme throughout. And I think there is some attempt to do that in just trying to show the darker, seedier side of the entertainment business and being a bit self-aware of that, the movie within the movie sort of thing. This is really funny. Like the parody aspect of it is really funny in this opening. And speaking of parodies, it's funny that Die Hard 2, Die Harder comes out later in 1990, which actually has terrorists with machine guns on snowmobiles, which is funny. And I was wondering if director Rennie Harlan borrowed from this film, Scrooged. Anyway, the film starts with Unbeknownst to us, the audience, a TV preview for an upcoming television special. We see the serene and joyful setting of the North Pole and Santa's workshop as Santa's elves are busy at work when one of the elves notices what looks like a shooting star or a sparkling meteor headed for their location and Santa screams, Incoming! Take over! Or excuse me, take cover! And the glowing meteors are explosives blowing up the surrounding snowy area and then bad guys dressed in all black ski masks and hoods start popping out of everywhere with machine guns. And then, surprisingly, Mrs. Claus screams, Let's get him! And she opens a wooden gun storage locker on the wall, which is lined with multiple machine guns. And Mrs. Claus and the elves grab the guns, and then a hero arrives in white snow gear on a snowmobile carrying a giant minigun. He comes in the shop, removes his goggles, and Santa exclaims, It's Lee Majors, the six million dollar man! And it is indeed Lee Majors playing himself. Tells Santa to escape out the back door, but Santa says he's the type of Santa that goes out the front door. 
tells Lee, you've been a real good boy this year. Everyone applauds, and then the announcer's voice comes over and says, Seven o'clock, Psycho sees Santa's workshop. And Lee Majors says, eat this. He puts his goggles on, and you hear the voice over again, and only Lee Majors can stop them. And Lee starts firing the minigun, just blowing away all the bad guys. We hear the title of the show, The Night the Reindeer Died. It's just one of those parody TV movie previews, and it's perfection. It's really kind of short and sweet, actually, but it's just awesome. And like Bill had mentioned earlier, we get a few more parody-type television show previews like Bob Goulet's Old Fashioned Cajun Christmas and then Father Loves Beaver, which is a take on Leave it to Beaver. That one was a little bit in poor taste. I was like, that is kind of already where I was like, what is this? And what? Speaking of things kind of being a little bit off, followed by you get the network logo, IBC, you'll love it. Spelled Y-U-L-E, as in Yule Log. You'll love it. But for me, Lee Majors in The Night the Reindeer Died is just a really, it's a funny, funny opening. Lee Majors is great. Everybody's great in it. So it was a smart way to open the movie with the Christmas parody action movie. So that's my first favorite scene. Yeah, I kind of wish they threw more of those in throughout the movie. Just upcoming shows and how he's programming and how it's not really... Showing the spirit of Christmas. That's where his mindset is. Mm -hmm. Instead of just being a jackass. You know what it reminded me of a little bit is the Paul Verhoeven, like satirical style, almost a little bit with the commercials that you see like in RoboCop. Oh, yeah. That are parody and just kind of cheesy or whatnot. There's a self-awareness there Mm -hmm. that I appreciate. Yeah, because then he has the meeting and then he shows that commercial for Scrooge. Right, because if you don't remember by any chance the audience listening that hasn't seen this film in a while, what's happening throughout the film is the IBC network, which Bill Murray runs as the youngest president ever of a TV network, is putting on a live production of A Christmas Carol. And they are rehearsing it throughout the film and then actually shooting it and airing the live show on Christmas Eve. But yes, at this point, we see a preview for the live show that the IBC network is going to put on. Right. So the station's showing your typical, hey, starring blah, 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 blah. And and Bill Murray, Frank Cross is like, no, 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 stop airing that one. I want to show this one instead. And it's this doom and gloom kind of essentially saying, if you do not see Scrooge, it could be the cause of your death or your demise or something horrible is going to happen to you if you don't want it. It's trying to scare the crap out of you that you must watch this show. And well, I guess people would believe that, but I don't think enough would believe it to tune in. I don't know. You know what? I should take that back. way things are going right now in the world, I guess I could believe that would happen. But it's just way over the top dumb that I did not find it funny. And it's like, yeah. kind of takes you out of it. It's a little too much. Yeah. Yeah. But the initial spoofs I thought were pretty good. What's your first favorite scene or moment? I've watched this maybe all the way through, maybe the third time. And I've watched different bits and pieces. In my earliest memories, everyone was always saying, Carol Kane is just hilarious as the ghost of Christmas present. And then I kind of remember watching it. And I was fascinated with the ghost of Christmas future. But watching it this time, I actually liked the ghost of Christmas past and his intro and his character. And the ghost of Christmas past is played by David Johansson, AKA Buster Poindexter, AKA hot, hot, hot. If you grew up in the eighties, you definitely know the hot, hot, hot song. 
So just to give a little backstory. So we find out Frank Cross, he's a jackass. And his old boss, uh, Lou Hayward, played by John Forsythe, visits him. And he's been dead for seven years. And he gives Frank the warning. Hey, you need to get your act together. You're going to be visited by three ghosts. First ghost is coming to you tomorrow at noon. Frank has a meeting with the the CEO or the head of uh, the network. I, CEO or owner of the company yeah, of the network. Yeah. So when he's at this lunch, Preston played by the great Robert Mitchum. So it's a lunch meeting and Preston's basically showing him he's bringing in John Glover, who is Bryce Cummings to help him with the Scrooge show. And, you know, it's kind of one of these. Oh, yeah, this guy's going to come in, try to stab him in the back, take his job over, that kind of thing. But while this lunch is happening, all these strange things are happening to Frank. He gets uh, a drink and he thinks he sees an eyeball in it. And of course, no one can see it. There's a waiter in the restaurant who's serving um, some kind of flambe. And the waiter looks like he catches on fire. And of course, Frank's the only one that, to see it. And so he's sweating it out because he knows this ghost is supposed to show up and he doesn't know when it's going to happen. So he he's really on edge and he just walks out of the restaurant. So he walks out of the restaurant and he goes to call a cab and this cab starts pulling up on the street and all of a sudden, another cab literally backs in front of the restaurant where the two cabs actually hit each other. So the cab that backs in, that's the cab that Frank Bill Murray gets into. And Bill Murray tells him where he wants to go. And the cab takes off up the street. And then there's a garbage truck that's blocking the path. And the cab just takes a U-turn, takes out an awning across the street and takes off. Mm-hmm. And of course, as anybody would, like, what the hell are you doing? And the cab driver says, Frank, calm down. Of course, Frank is surprised by this. And we find out it's his first ghost that he's supposed to meet, the ghost of Christmas past. Right. And he goes through the journey of taking him through his childhood. First place they go to is, I think, 1955, when Frank is four years old. I think Frank makes a joke like, oh, I'm supposed to get all mushy about this. And... The ghost says, oh, well, Till the Hun, he was he was a blubbering mess, so we'll see what we can do to you. Niagara Falls, crying like Niagara Falls. So we go to Frank's house, and all the houses on the street are decorated except for his. And they go into the house, and we see little Frank, four years old, watching TV. His mom's pregnant with his brother, who we've met in the present day, who invites him to a Christmas party and... He refuses. And then his dad comes home, which is kind of funny because the dad's actually played by Bill Murray's brother. Brian Doyle Murray. Yep. Right. So then Frank's all excited because he wants a choo-choo train for Christmas. And his dad's like, hey, I got you a present and throws down a package. And he's like, is this my train? He's like, no, it's five pounds of veal. That's good stuff. And, of course, Frank's upset. And his dad basically admonishes him about you should just accept what you get. Or if you want to get something, you need to go out and earn it. And then falls asleep on the couch. And then his mom, you can see his mom's upset that he's upset, but she knows she's kind of stuck where she is and wishes Frank a Merry Christmas. It almost felt like one point that she was just going to leave the family at that point. That's what I mm. thought. I was like, oh my God, she's uh, she's going to ditch. But that's what happened. And then we see Frank and he's all blubbering and crying and stuff like that. And then they jump ahead to Frank meeting Karen Allen, a.k.a. Claire, for the first time. And... The ghost of Christmas past 
just finds it very cute. You know, it's like, oh, this is when Cupid hits you with the arrow. And then they just kind of show a little bit of their backstory in like two other scenes. One's a Christmas, mm-hmm. one's a Christmas day, which is given the Karma Sutra book. And then the other one is Frank's working on this kid's show and Preston basically says, hey, I want to have a meeting with you. It's actually Lou. It's actually Lou. It's it's uh Oh John right, right, right. Yes, it is, it is. Yeah, it's his previous boss because this is back in time, right? Yes. So this is uh previous to Preston. Right. It was Lou first. Yeah, it's much younger. Yeah. Yeah, there's a scene in there where we talk about where he works he's working in the mailroom at the station and one of the coworkers that works there is kind of coming on to him and he kind of puts the kibosh on it and present day Frank's like, Oh my gosh, she wanted you. Why did you walk away from that? But then he meets Claire. It looks like their relationship's going great, but then it jumps ahead to the lose scene. And at this point, you can see things aren't quite that great because Claire says it's time to take a break. And then the ghost of Christmas past says, adios, next ghost is coming. I just like Dave Johansson's portrayal on that. I thought he was kind of funny. Like, See, that was the thing. Like, He had kind of had a biting sense of humor, but then... Like in the scene with Franks in his house as a kid, he actually kind of feels sorry for him. He kind of sees like, yeah, mm-hmm. I kind of see why you're the jackass you are now. I, I see where it started. I sympathize with you. And then he even seems all mushy inside when he sees Claire and Frank meet for the first time. So I don't know. I, I kind of like how he played the character. He was he was a little bit all over the place, but it, it worked in the context of what he was supposed to do, his job. I love it. And it's the bulk of this is my next favorite scene. So we're oh, okay. in total alignment. David Johansson is a lot of fun. I happen to love him in another little film called Let It Ride, yeah. which I keep talking about because I love that movie. And guess what he plays in Let It Ride? A taxi cab driver. How about that? Mm, little typecasting. So, I think you're right on the money with this. Of the three ghosts that visit Frank Cross, this is my favorite of the three, although a close second is Ghost of Christmas Future, which I will discuss very soon. However, I put this down as the Frank and Claire montage during the visit from Ghost of Christmas Past, that being David Johansson. Now, because this, to me, actually, is where Bill Murray shines. It's like you said earlier. It's Echoes of Stripes. This is him being... At his best, his goofy flirtation and charm totally works. And I'm talking specifically about the scenes between himself and Claire, Karen Allen. You know, his quick-witted, clever jokes, uh, their chemistry, I think, is great. Maybe it's not laugh out loud, but it still warms my heart. It makes me smile. So I think it's funny. Now, going back to the first sequence where the ghost of Christmas past takes Frank Cross to his home that he grew up in. And we see the, like Bill had just mentioned, his gruff father coming in and then the doting mother, which tears him up. But I think it's kind of interesting too, is the fact that young Frank is just enamored with television. We see the beginnings of his love for all things TV. And that's probably what was his real parent, maybe, or television raised him, right? And so no surprise that he becomes involved in TV media. But moving on to the scenes that I'm kind of highlighting here is that we see the beginning of the relationship between Frank and Claire, when Claire's coming out of a store, she hits Frank in the head with the door as she's coming out. That's where he gets the nickname Lumpy. It's very cute, adorable. They begin their tradition of getting Chinese food on their dates. We see them then in the next scene on one particular Christmas Eve, opening one present each. He gets her a set of 12 Ginsu knives. 
which is hilarious. And he has a great line where he says to her, I've never liked a girl enough to give her 12 sharp knives. It's just a funny line. That worked for me. Uh, I almost laughed out loud at that point. So like Bill mentioned, she gives him the book on the Kama Sutra. Again, all charming, cute, fun, full of warmth. And of course, Frank is in the Frank Cross that we know is watching this play out. He's watching himself and Claire and they're in the midst of the good times. And he's missing Claire and the good times they shared. And the ghost then takes him to the next time when Frank is working as Frisbee the dog on a kid's television show for the IBC network. And he has this opportunity as a choice to either go to dinner with Claire and their friends that they had already made plans for or to have dinner with his boss, which could prove valuable for his career. Like it could uh, get him to, you know, up the, the career ladder. And he chooses his job. He's selfish and he chooses his job and his career path over Claire. And that's the beginning of the end of their relationship. And it's bittersweet. But throughout this, my point being is the reason why I like this is it's what I'd like to, I wanted to see is that even in that scene where Bill Murray is being a jerk to Claire and he's choosing his career over her, he's still somewhat charming. And there's some funny lines and their dynamic works, their chemistry works for me. I wish there was more of it. This is nice that this is in here because of the juxtaposition between Murray as a jerk and Murray as a good hearted boyfriend to Claire. But again, I wish... I get it. It's not the point of the film. It's like Bill Murray has to be Scrooge in this movie. So he's supposed to be a jerk throughout. But this is the Bill Murray I know and love. That's all I'm saying. Right. In, I agree in with these you. sequences with in the sequences with the ghost of Christmas past and Claire. It's your turn if you got another favorite scene or moment. Uh, it's a small scene. And it's when the ghost of Christmas present, played by Carol Kane, meets up with Frank and is now taking him through the people that he's involved with or affects him. And he goes to his brother's house. And earlier in the movie, his brother, who is actually played by his real brother, John Murray, has invited Frank to the house for the holiday meal. And of course, Frank's like, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I don't know why you keep asking me. I'm never going to do it. And then there's a moment when he's in the office and he's with Grace and they're going through all the Christmas gifts and it's either you either get a VCR or you get a bath towel. And of course she asks about his brother and he says bath towel. So the ghost of Christmas present takes Frank to see his brother, to see what they're doing right now on the holiday. There's like three couples and they're sitting around the table and they're opening gifts and James is opening his gift from Frank and James's wife is, oh, God, here's your brother. And why do you always ask him to come? And he's like, come on, he's, you know, he's my brother. Of course, I'm going to ask. And they go to open the gift and we find out he did not get a bath towel. He got the VCR. So, of course, Frank's super pissed that he got the VCR instead of the bath towels. Right. But they're incredibly shocked that he got such a nice gift. And once again, his wife's like, why do you put up with him? And he's just super honest. He's like, hey, I love him. He's my brother. It's family. You can't help it. I think in a way that Frank does love his brother, mm -hmm. he's not actually a jerk to him, but he, he definitely keeps him at arm's distance. Sure. But I think his brother sees or knows who his brother used to be and hopes he can get that brother back. 
and keeps trying to reach out and see maybe he can reach him at some point. And then he talks about his Christmas gift that he got for his brother, and he handmade this picture frame of the two of them that Frank will eventually open. It's, it's a nice handcrafted frame. Yeah, with a picture of them as young kids. kids holding one another, and it's very sentimental. And then it's kind of funny because then there's the couples who start playing a like trivia game, and they're basic questions of just like, come on. And one of the questions is, uh, what was the name of the boat from Gilligan's Island? And James has no idea, and Frank's like yelling at him. It's like, it's the SS Minnow. SS Minnow, right. come on, you gotta know it's right. And then, of course, my president's had enough and basically knocks frank in the face with a toaster and then right. we jump to the next scene i'm glad you brought it up and i'm glad that we're covering all the ghosts because there was some good stuff in there and i agree with you it's interesting because i wished they had developed this a little bit more this relationship that he has with his brother played by his actual real life brother is nice there is that moment when they are walking along the street and his brother is saying are you coming over for christmas are you going to you know make dinner this time etc and this makes bill murray uncomfortable. He doesn't like the holiday. He thinks it's all a scam. It's all hype. It's all BS. And sitting around the fire with family and friends is just not for him. And the celebration is not for him. But you're right, Bill. You do see that Bill Murray's character, Frank, does care for his brother, James. He genuinely has a moment where he says, look, I like you. I like being with you. But this ain't for me. You sense that he genuinely does love his brother, and it would be nice to have seen a couple, maybe a little bit more between them, because you understand, then you understand, well, there's a heart in there somewhere in Frank's body. He's not all sadistic evil, like he actually has a heart, but it's just he is cold for some reason. Anyway, and I do like that part where Frank is going down the list of who, what gifts to give to whom, and kind of is selective about who gets the VCRs and who gets the bath towels. And upon the second watch, I caught the fact that he said something. He was on the phone and he said something to the effect that, yes, Grace is deciding who gets what gifts and she only gets to make one mistake. And that slipped by me the first time I watched it. But I think the one mistake she gets to make that she does make is sending his brother the VCR instead of the bath towel. That's my take on that. So... Good stuff, man. Oh, and I forgot to mention that Bill Murray's other brother, Joel, is also in that scene as one of the other right. couples, which is kind of confusing. The friends at the party. Yeah, because yeah. you're like, wait, does he have two brothers? Like, I know he has two real, well, three real brothers, but two are in yeah. this scene. One's playing his brother. The other one's just playing a friend. And the other one's playing his father. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of Murray's. A lot of family. Is. Bill Murray's got a lot of siblings. My next favorite scene was the Ghost of Christmas Future. There's a really cool start to the sequence as Frank is watching now. This is Christmas Eve, so he's watching the live broadcast of the IBC Network's production of A Christmas Carol, which has a bunch of stars in it. I do apologize a little bit here to our audience. We're throwing out a lot of names. This is a loaded cast of loaded cameos in this movie. So in this live production of A Christmas Carol, we've got everyone from Buddy Hackett to Mary Lou Retton that shows up. And now... Frank is a bit unsettled and jarred here at this point because he's gone through the two previous ghosts and he's sitting in his office watching the live production of A Christmas Carol, which is being shown on multiple stacked TV screens on the wall. 
So Frank has his back turned in his chair. All of a sudden, we see the image of a large looming skeleton figure in a dark cloak come across the screens, and the skeleton actually reaches outward from the screen. And this is the shot from the trailer where we see the giant skeleton hand reaching toward Frank with this enormous bony hand, and he's just about to grab him when disgruntled ex-employee Elliot Loudermilk, Bobcat Goldthwait, shows up with a shotgun and starts shooting up the place. Frank manages to escape into an elevator, and we see the cloaked skeleton figure once again pressing up Frank, intimidating him. And there's this great quote here, which is also in the trailer, where Frank says, hey, back off, big man. That may work with the chicks, but not with me. Anyway, Frank opens the skeleton's cloak, because he doesn't really believe it's a real skeleton yet. And we see this like mini ghost, these mini uh, ghostly and ghastly creatures crawling around the insides of the bony torso, which is cool, practical creature effects. I'd like the some of the effects in the sequence. And then when Frank looks up, he sees that the cloaked figure's face is no longer a skeleton face or skull, but it's actually a TV screen showing him what's happening, which is kind of kind of sci fi esque and weird, creepy. Frank sees the future Grace in a padded room with her son, Calvin, who's like in a straitjacket, who's clearly been admitted to an asylum. Then he's shown the future Claire, who has become this jaded, wealthy woman who's mean to starving poor children. Things clearly didn't work out at the shelter, and she's now mean to these poor kids. Anyway, then he's shown what seems to be a funeral slash cremation scene with a casket on display in front of the cremation chamber, And he he mistakenly thinks he's witnessing his brother's cremation, but then realizes that his brother James and Wendy are actually in attendance watching this happen. And it's actually Frank who's trapped in the casket and being cremated alive. And he's freaking out. And he says, I want to live. I want to live. And Frank snaps back to reality in the midst of all this. And in the midst of the shotgun attack by Elliot Loudermilk, which is pretty amusing because now he's got this new found love for life and just grabs Bobcat Colthwaite, again, Elliot Loudermilk, and just gives a big hug and he's kissing him. And he says, you glad to see me? Or is that a shotgun in your pocket? And he just tosses the shotgun aside and it goes off. And there's kind of some fun in those moments there. So there were some cool effects in here. I love the skeleton figure, the giant figure, some cool practical effects. And yeah, I just think, again, it gets a little dark. This is a quick sequence. This is only a matter of, the ghost of Christmas future, this whole thing only happened like with the actual ghost and him going through the scenarios of the, of the future only lasts a matter of few minutes. Yeah. Future. Four or five minutes. Ghost always seems to get it's a, it's short, short, short changed in these uh, adaptions. Yeah. It always seems like. They don't spend seems- a lot of time on it. No, I did like when the ghost is about to reach or grab Frank and then Elliot mm-hmm. shows up and he just kind of withdraws like, ah, let, yeah, let's see how this plays out. Maybe I don't need to talk to him because he's about to get blown away. So I thought that was kind of funny. And then the television screen, that made a lot of sense because that's how Frank views his life, through a television screen. So what's the best way to get his attention by having him watch television? Yeah, I I think initially he was my favorite of the ghosts, but it goes too fast. And I think what is off-putting is the Claire scene. I don't believe Claire would ever do a 180 like that. Right. If the Calvin stuff makes sense, him passing away makes sense. They should have did something else different with Claire. 
And I think that would have worked a little bit. I think that's a fair point. I agree with that. I didn't think about that. Yeah. It doesn't seem in line with her character at all that she would like something really awful must have happened to make her so jaded and to make her do such a 180. Mm -hmm. Maybe something where she's still suffering because of what happened with Frank, not a 180. Right. Yeah. All right. So this takes me to my last favorite scene or moment doesn't take place too much longer after what you just talked about. And it's kind of uh, Frank's redemption. And this whole scene is basically just improv. He ends up on the set of Scrooge in the middle of the taping and basically stops production to tell the audience, I'm the one that put this on. This is really stupid of me to put this on. It's Christmas. They should all be home enjoying time with their families. I've seen the light and... I think the speech itself in the beginning is just a little too haphazard. Yeah, it's rambling. Yeah. But at the end, it talks about the miracle of Christmas and everyone out there should find the miracle of Christmas. And he was excited that he's finally found the miracle of Christmas and it doesn't have to be just during Christmas. It can it can be any day of your life. And he's excited that it's happened to me. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. And he closes it out with this speech. He said, I'm ready for it, and it's great, and it's a good feeling. It's really better than I felt in a long time. I'm ready. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. And he's about to close out the show, and then we have little Calvin's there. And, oh, my God, this kid's so adorable. Yeah, he's cute, kid. Cute he hasn't kid. said anything throughout the whole movie. He, you know, he has shut down because of his father's death, and he walks up to Frank and throughout the whole movie, he's been watching scenes of A Christmas Carol, other adaptions of A Christmas Carol. And he walks up to Frank, and Frank looks down at him, and he says, did I forget something, big man? And Calvin nods and says, God bless us, everyone. And Frank's in total shock because he knows this is a big deal. Grace is right off the side, and her kids are there, and they're all you know ecstatic. I'll be honest, I actually got choked up then. I couldn't believe it because yeah. this whole movie, yeah, I yeah. just wasn't into it. But just him going up there and just doing that, like, you know, it's coming, though, in a way, it almost redeemed the the movie a little bit for me Mm -hmm. because it's just barely audible. It just barely gets out. And um, he's just so excited to say it because he's been hearing it over and over in the last 48 hours. And he gets a this is what Christmas is all about. And the Mm -hmm. fact that he has the courage to walk up to Frank and tell him to say that is great too, because they had, they actually do have like a conversation earlier in the movie. Right. Grace brought him on set and he kind of starts yelling at him, not knowing that it's Grace's kid, but the fact that he's turned around and now the kid has had a breakthrough. That got to me a little bit. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie about that. Absolutely. 1000%. Totally agree. I had a few favorite moments I was going to cover really quickly. And that's what I was going to end with. The, the The moment when Calvin speaks does totally tug at the heartstrings. Yeah. Completely works. God bless us, everyone. Adorable kid. And the setup was great because, as I had mentioned earlier, one of my favorite things about the movie is Alfre Woodard, her performance and the warmth of the scenes that she's in with her family because they are poor and she has not gotten her Christmas bonus. They can't afford a Christmas tree. There's a bittersweet moment because the siblings to Calvin, her other kids, have, because they don't have a Christmas cheery, they've put uh, wrapped him with the Christmas lights and decorations and made little Calvin the Christmas tree, and they light up the lights. And then 
Alfred Woodard comes out and says, you didn't, oh, you didn't make him the Christmas tree again. Cause of course, Calvin's not having a good time, but you can see Alfred Woodard is trying not to laugh because no, no. it is adorable and it's kind of funny and it's a heartwarming moment. And so the setup is there where you have this cute kid who's endured trauma in his life and he's coping with it. And his mom's looking after him and taking him to the doctor and they're at home and you can see they're of modest means and of low income and all that. And so at the end, you want to see them overcome and thrive. And, and, and so that when the kid uh, overcomes the, the trauma, you know, and speaks, it's super bittersweet. It's great. A couple other moments I just wanted to shout out were, again, there's some cool effects in this movie that totally worked for me. Early in the film when Lou Hayward, the ghost of Lou Hayward, confronts Frank. At one point, he pushes Frank through the window and hangs him outside the window. That's kind of cool. Yes, Holding him by the one. neck. That's a pretty cool effect. Uh, and then uh, one other moment that I actually really liked is when uh, you mentioned this earlier. It's when uh, Murray's going a little crazy. He thinks he's seeing things, and it's really just effects from the ghost, the ghost effect, we can call it. And Bill Murray sees the waiter preparing the baked Alaska and setting it on fire. And then he believes the actual waiter is on fire and he splashes him with some water. And then Bill Murray walks up the stairs and and slips on the water afterward. And and it's funny because it actually was real. That was uh, an actual happy accident that happened on set that was not meant to happen. Bill Murray did slip on the water and fell down. But it's funny. Again, almost laughed out loud. Just some other lighter moments in the movie or cool effects moments. But that's all I got, Bill Bant. Did you have anything else? No, that was it. Let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaints. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, if it doesn't fall in Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. The movie's basically following Christmas Carol. So as for holes, I don't think I really have anything, but certainly got some complaints. Yeah, I got a few. What do you got? I'm going to start with something we touched upon earlier. I'm not sure we need two of the characters in this film. Okay. Neither Preston, the owner of the company, the CEO, or Bryce Cummings, the LA creative consultant coming in to help Frank produce the live show. Neither of them are really that necessary to me. They're kind of just filler. Now, I understand that they're supposed to be stress factors for Frank, kind of making him think that he's going a little nutty or he's just overworked. But I don't know really how else they serve the story. It's a little bit strange for me. Preston comes in early in the film and is talking about programming television for animals, or at least adding more animals into the live production that they're doing of A Christmas Carol to provide for those animals that might be watching. It's very strange. Then you get Bryce, played by the wonderful John Glover, and he's just this smarmy L.A. creative type who is a little bit obnoxious. The point being is, like, how do they serve the story? How do they serve the story outside of being loud and eccentric? And I get that they're supposed to represent what is wrong with the television business in their eccentricities, but does Frank's turnaround in the film help them realize the error of their ways? Does he fill them with the Christmas spirit? Ah, sort of. We do see Preston smile kind of at toward the end. And then there's just some weird stuff with Bryce being tied up and under a mistletoe and their characters don't work for me. Right. That's my complaint. That was actually one of my questions. Uh, complaint was John Glover Bryce really a bad guy. 
I didn't see it. There's an annoyance. Right. It was more of an annoyance. We never really saw that he was trying to take Frank's job. That never really came across. You just assume that. Even if he was, and if he's this obstacle to Frank, what what's the point? How does that get Frank where he needs to be to be a better man and to be filled with the Christmas spirit? Yeah, it's kind of weird to say like, oh, you have Robert Mitchum and John Glover in your movie and you don't really need them. Yeah. I thought they were both wasted myself too, especially Glover. Yeah. He's great, isn't he? He seems so like young to too. Yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. It's like, wow, it looks like a little baby in this one. I don't know why. Did you ever watch Smallville? Huge, huge Smallville guy. There you go. Yeah. He's awesome in that. Yes, he was. Anyway, love John Glover. This is kind of weird. So at the end, here we go. After Frank's redemption, him and Elliot hatch a plan to take over the show. So he sends Elliot, Bobcat Goldthwait, into the control room with a shotgun, right? Uh, yeah, here we go. Absolutely. And there's a shot where... Frank yells up to Elliot, hey, you guys should be partying up there. Why do I not hear you partying? And then Elliot points the gun at everyone and says, let's start to party. And there's a woman, is an Asian woman in the front uh-huh. and she has her hands up and she's shaking. She thinks she's going to die at any moment. That's not funny. This woman is experiencing horrible trauma right now. Where is the humor mm-hmm. in this? She thinks she's a hostage. She thinks she's going to get her head blown off. Right. But that was very jarring to me. I did not like that at all. That's a major complaint I have with the final monologue sequence that's intercut with different things going on. And yeah, that part with Bobcat Colthwaite in the control room, taking everyone hostage, basically, is problematic, Mm -hmm. to say the least. I took it as though that the woman we see, it looks like she's shaking because he's telling them to party. I think she's shaking and she's trying to dance. Oh, no, she she looks terrified. She looks terrified. Her face, yeah, totally portrays fear completely. Yeah, I have a lot, not a lot to say about that, but it's problematic. Holding a shotgun to everybody in that control room is just like, again, just kind of dark and extremely violent. So, and it's weird again, because all of a sudden we have Bryce tied up and under mistletoe and we see the sensor that's on set who's this lady who's been getting beat up the whole movie oh, yeah she decides to you know plant a kiss on bones. rice under the mistletoe yeah and it's awkward and weird what i'm saying about there's moments in this that are really off-putting throughout this film that are just like it's off-center this not grounded it's not justified or motivated and it doesn't serve the story and it's kind of played for laughs, but the jokes don't land. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. So yeah, the monologue, the beginning of it, like you said, you know, it feels like uh, he's just, he's riffing, he's rambling. This is the wrap up. I'm winging it. So let's just go with it. But yeah, it's not until, you know, the end when he gets to the point and we get Calvin saying, God blesses everyone that it really lands. But then even after that, it ends with a sing-along of Put a Little Love in Your Heart, which has the right message, but it's not a Christmas song. And that was weird to me. That's the song you're going to end on? It's the right message? I I don't know. It's just a lot of it is weird. I I thought that it was a great song to have over the end credits. Yeah, I like the song. Yeah, all right. I don't know. So I thought this was kind of weird when we uh, Christmas passed and we visit the Frisbee the Dog set Mm -hmm. that they're filming. Why are they filming a kid's show on Christmas Eve? Was it a live show? I mean, we know out here, usually all this Best. stuff shuts down in the like, end of November, 
maybe the first week of December. No one's shooting anything at that time of the year. Why would you shoot something on Christmas Eve? I thought that was just weird. That's certainly absolutely weird. Didn't really think about that. Good observation. That doesn't make sense. Like it wasn't a Christmas themed no. Frisbee the dog show. Nope. Okay. Good call. Hey man, here's a complaint. I was pissed when Herman died. Played by the great Michael J. Pollard. Come on. He's Owen from Tango and Cash. You, yeah. can't, you can't kill Herman. Because in the movie, Herman is one of the, the people at the homeless or at the, the shelter. Right. And he is sitting outside after Bill Murray leaves in a huff and asks Bill Murray for $2 for heat, which I don't know how that's going to work for exactly. But Bill Murray refuses. And then we, of course, then later see that Herman freezes to death. And I'm like, again, just a little little dark. Just went a little, like a step too far. Yeah, with a smile on his face. Herman need to die? You can't kill Owen from Tango and Cash. No. You can't do that. Can't do it. Did you have any more complaints? How did Elliot get back in the office? I mean, they were very emphatic about throwing him out. He got, mm-hmm. the timeline's kind of weird because he gets thrown out, I guess, two days before Christmas. They literally, literally toss him out. They don't even want him on the property. Yeah, so much so that they, they don't even want him like, on the curb or on the uh, the stairs leading to the up to the office building. I mean, right. they want him on the street. So they kick him out, kick him out. He comes back with a shotgun. Now we know the building's open because they're shooting the show, so they gotta have security mm-hmm. there. How do you get up yeah. to Frank's office? I have no idea. Maybe got a call ahead. I don't know. I don't know. I have no. I have no good answer for that. Sorry. Yeah. Good point. So my final overall complaint again is just with the sadistic nature of. Frank Cross. Uh, it's just a bit much for me. You know, again, like just as we were saying, he's reveling in Elliot Loudermilk's firing, literally watching him oh, as yeah. he gets fired the entire time, enjoying every moment of it. There's a moment when he takes down Grace's child's drawing and crumples it up and throws it away because it's not an accurate portrayal of Mrs. Claus. He steals a cab from an old woman and then flips her off. It's stuff like that where it's not necessarily, I won't go as far as saying it's disturbing, but it's not funny. Right, because then they, they try to do that bit it's where just he not funny. wins the humanitarian award and leaves the trophy in the cab. Mm-hmm. He would never even put himself in a position to get that award. Mm. That's how you're playing him. He's such an asshole. People would see right through him. There's no way he would get that award. The attempt at finding the comedy in the darkness of the script failed. It was not successful, in my opinion, and that's my biggest complaint. Yeah, Murray would have been better off playing one of the ghosts. Mm. I think I would have liked to have seen that more. Different actor play Scrooge. Yeah, maybe. I like it. Any more complaints from you, Bill Band? Yeah, I'm going back to Elliot again. I feel bad for him. Sure. So, you know, he gets back in the office. He's, He's shooting it up. And he's complained about how bad the last 24 hours of his life has been. And at one point he mentions that his wife divorced him. I'm like, wait, he just got fired. His wife left him. Right. Yeah. So his wife left him just because he lost his job. Yeah. Dude, you should be applauding that then. That bitch can't stand with you over something like that. (laughs) That's not cool. Seems like a good guy. Damn. That's really funny, man. Now you got your salary doubled. And then I felt bad yeah. for Grace. I'm like, Grace, why are you still working there? Obviously, you're very qualified. You can get a job anywhere else. And we know she's been there at least six years. Yeah. These are all fair points. I totally agree. You could say, why does 
even louder milk except Bill Murray's apology or Frank Cross. I keep calling just saying Bill Murray, but Frank Cross. Why is Frank in her good graces? Why at the end of the movie, why does Claire continue to put up with Frank's bullshit? He's just, a, he's pretty much an obnoxious ass throughout, at least in the present. We do see his charming side in the ghost of Christmas past sequence, but the way it's played, the way he plays it and the way he's just, I think in one of the reviews, they say the problem is that it may have been Ebert's extended review of this is that Bill Murray plays this as if he's really angry. And that's part of the problem. Right. But that's an opinion. I don't know. You know, it's not, he's not playing it. I'm charming, but kind of a dick at the same time. It's more of, no, I'm just really bitter and playing it really mean spirited. It's like, Ooh, like Claire, uh, not, not doesn't work for a comedy, the, uh, the comedy take on this classic tale. Right. Claire, I could see because she's seen the other side of Frank and, and is hoping that he's turning a corner and wants the old Frank back. And she's only, she's had limited interaction with him at the, at this point. Cause I think at one point he says it's been like 15 years. So I'm okay with that. Fair enough. But Grace, unless Grace is making good money, there's no reason she should be putting up with that. Any, anyone else would have walked out four years ago. They're not going to put up that shit. I'm just like, I could do this job anywhere else and probably at least make what I'm making here or more. So it was like Frank's being sadistic and Grace is being masochistic. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Because it still would have worked if Grace was working for him and making okay money and they were still having the issue with the son. And he's just taking her time away to focus on him. But, you know, she's like, yeah, but I'm making good money. I'm, you know, I'm not going to make this money anywhere else. I would have, you know, sympathized with her because I'm like, I get it. It's like, you got five kids you got to raise. But I feel like this, it's not even enough money to raise a family. And then you have your poor kid on top of all this. Why are you still there? She should be able to get a job somewhere else. Yeah, she's too good for that place, for sure. She would, yeah, should never be putting up with that. She wouldn't put up with that. The problem is, the thing is, too, though, with the casting of Alfre Woodard, whom we've seen uh, in uh, numerous other films, she can be, she's very strong. Exactly. And she has, it's, it's not that she necessarily plays super strong in this movie. It's just that her presence is strong. If this were a meek person cast in this role, maybe you would see them being willing to be stepped on or pushed around. Correct. But she has too much of a powerful or commanding presence as an actress. That is Alfre Woodard, which is a compliment, but does it work in this role? Because she just is not a pushover. Correct. You see why Frank has her because she's very dependable. Capable. Yeah, absolutely. She should have threatened to leave. Hell yeah. Or got transferred or something. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I'm out of complaints. I'm done complaining for the time being. Did you have anything else, my friend? All right. So that's it for complaints. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor that makes their big screen debut. Or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who do you have, Jason? So many cameos in this movie. Many, many. I decided to go with Anne Ramsey, who plays Ava, or Woman in Shelter. She is alongside Michael J. Pollard, who plays Herman, and Logan Ramsey, who plays the man in Shelter, who's actually her husband in real life Yep. at this point. And... Uh, the scene is the three of them being 
homeless in this shelter. And when Bill Murray comes in, they think he's Richard Burton, the famous actor. And they keep asking him to recite lines from his famous works. It is somewhat amusing. But Anne Ramsey is unmistakable. Her look and her voice. And she's funny. So a little bit about Anne Ramsey. After she had uh, married actor Logan Ramsey, the couple founded Philadelphia's Theater of the Living Arts. Thought you'd appreciate that, Bill Ban, being from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. She was... Noticed for her trademark brusque, gruff, usually comedic roles, after which she had received more film offers, notably Going South in 1978. She was in Any Which Way You Can in 1980 and a movie called A Deadly Friend in 1986. But she's best known for her film roles as Mama Fratelli in The Goonies in yep. 1985 and Mrs. Lift in Throw Mama from the Train in 1987. Now, I did not realized this or had forgotten completely that for her role in Throw Mama from the Train, she had earned a nomination from the Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actress and uh, also a nomination for Golden Globe Award. So Anne Ramsey's somewhat slurred speech, a trademark of her later performances, was caused in part from having had some of her tongue and jaw removed during surgery for esophageal cancer in 1984. And in 1988, Ramsey's cancer returned, unfortunately, uh, and she passed away only four months after her appearance at the 60th Academy Awards, which was only weeks after the release of Scrooged. She passed away at the age of 59, R.I.P. and Ramsey. Yeah, they do a little thing of the for her in the credits. They, they must have put it in for the video release. Oh, Jason, that's so funny because I actually wrote that name down as my headset actor, and I said, you know what? Jason might have this one. Mm. And luckily I did. So I went with Buddy Hackett, who plays oh, sure, yeah. Scrooge in the live adaption of Scrooged. So Buddy Hackett, mostly known for being a comedian, numerous, numerous, numerous appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Oh, my God. He was hysterical on that show. So he was a big-time headliner in Vegas, uh, which is kind of ironic because his comedy was very, let's say, off-color. But when it came to movies, here's some of the movies that he was in. The Music Man, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, The Love Bug, The Voice of Scuttle, and The Little Mermaid, all family mm. films. So if you had seen his movies and then went to go see him do stand not knowing what his stand-up was, you would have been like, who the hell is this? this is, it's total 180. Um, there's a great story about when he was on Carson and it went to commercial and he told such an off-color joke. Like they almost couldn't go back to the show because everyone was laughing so hard. Um, I knew him originally from The Love Bug. And then my dad was a huge, huge fan of It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World which I remember the first time watching this. And then my dad telling me the movie was like over three hours long. And I'm like, Oh my God, a movie is that long. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely no more verse for a standup, but he has a little special place in, in my heart. Uh, and then you could definitely find a lot of his stuff online on some of his Carson appearances. And some of them are, are really funny. So that's why I want to buddy hack it. Great call. Thanks for sharing all that. 
All right, so uh, let's move on to facts and trivia. What's some facts and trivia uh, we have not stepped on that we could share with our audience? Well, here we go. Bill Murray and director Richard Donner reportedly did not enjoy working together, creating a lot of tension on set. When asked by film critic Roger Ebert if he had any disagreements with Donner, Bill Murray replied, only a few, every single minute of the day. That could have been a really, really great movie. The script was so good. There's maybe one take in the final cut that is mine. We made it so fast, it was like doing a movie live. He kept telling me to do things louder, louder, louder. I think he was deaf. That might explain a little bit of kind of what went wrong behind the scenes in the production of this film. Kind of alludes to, and there's a lot in the research. You can look it up, of course, uh, you know, because I'm pulling from the usual sources, IMDb and Wikipedia. Bill Murray, obviously known for his improvisation and ad-libbing, and Richard Donner known for his action directing. They kind of butted heads on how to do things. I think they, you know, they managed to get along and get it done, but uh, there was a lot of script changes and things like that. You may get into that a little bit. I don't want to step on your toes, Bill Bant, but there was issues with the production of this film. I kind of stayed away from that stuff, to be honest, with my um, trivia, because it's two sides to every story, and then there's the truth. I think Donner's been was a, a little bit more gracious on it. Like he alluded to the fact that they'd not get along. No question, but he understood. Bill Murray is considered a icon, a treasure per se. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, he didn't really get into it. How ugly it was, whereas Murray, he wasn't holding backs. Right. So speaking of the ghosts of Christmas past, so the cab that he drives belongs to the Bell Cab Company. Uh, Bell is the name of Scrooge's first love in the Charles Dickens novel, from which the story is loosely taken from. You can see it really brief when he backs in. That's the Bell Cab Company. And then you can catch it a couple other times. I never would I love have, that. I, never would have known I wrote that, that down too. Oh, That's did you? a cool one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, when Bill Murray and his brother are walking along the city street, we see them pass by some street musicians. And the leader of the street musicians, insulted by Bill Murray, is Paul Schaefer. The others are Miles Davis, David Sanborn, and Larry Carlton. These are huge musicians, yep. like big names talking about cameos. My goodness. Yeah, I had that one down I too. Idea. I thought that was a good one. Freaking Miles Davis, man. And by the way, David Sanborn, always loved him on the sax because I used to play sax uh, back in the day in high school. But I love David Sanborn because guess what soundtrack he played on with Eric Clapton, which was composed by Michael Kamen. That would be Lethal Weapon. You got it. Directed by Richard Donner. Hey, once again, Ghost Christmas Past. Can't talk enough about him. So David Johansson, a.k.a. Buster Poindexter, was not the original choice for that role. And I wasn't sure about this, but I had to check it a couple times to make sure. So the original actor that they wanted to play that role was Sam Kennison. God, imagine how much different that would have been if he played the Ghost of Christmas Past. Totally different take. Oh, yeah. He would have been great. Yeah, he would have. It would have been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Very loud as well, but different. Just different. Different character altogether. Yeah, it's one of those when you read it like, yeah, I'd actually like to see it. Yeah, love it. Hey, uh, when the homeless shelter residents mistake Frank for Richard Burton, it's an allusion to Bill Murray's SNL skit on Saturday Night Live. 
where he imitated Richard Burton's most famous dramatic scenes. I tried to find it on YouTube just in case, but it's, I didn't see it. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I need to find that one because I read that too. And I'm like, I don't, I don't remember that skit. I was going to look for it. So, but to no avail, here's my last one. So, uh, one of the Christmas carols or the Scrooge production selling points is that it features the solid gold dancers as the Scroogeettes. The movie would unfortunately mark the group's final performance because Solid Gold, the TV show, had been canceled that summer. What a bummer. I was trying to remember when Solid Gold was on. Yeah. I think that for us, it was like Saturday nights at 7 on one of the um, mm-hmm. UHF channels. I would always catch a little bit and just kind of watch it for fun. Mm-hmm. Solid Gold dancers. They were great. I know. They're hot. They were. So I brought this up earlier. Preston, the owner of... IBC Network, tells Frank that in America there are 27 million cats, 48 million dogs, and then says quite seriously that IBC needs to start gearing programming towards them. As of 2015, there there are several dog and cat-specific channels on Roku that supply dedicated pet programming based on scientific studies of what interests them. That's the world we live in. Yes, it is. This movie from 1988, predicting the future. I'll give him that. Uh, This is fun. I like this. The sling-mounted GEM-134 minigun used by Lee Majors in the beginning of the movie was the same stage prop used by Jesse Ventura in Predator. God, I hope that fact is true. I love that. I hope so, too. Hilarious. That almost made me want to go back and watch it just to make sure. Like, do some screenshots. I'm going to leave you with this little fun fact, Bill. Okay. Are Dormice really mice? <laughs> Despite their name, Dormice are not actually mice, but belong to a separate family of rodents, which contains around 30 different species. I just thought that was hilarious. I had to look it up. I was like, what is a Dormouse? At, at first, I'll be, I, I was just completely ignorant. I was just like, are they just mice that live near doors? <laughs> like, <laughs> D-O-O-R? Dormice, I'm like, oh, di- no, it's, it's a type of mouse, like a D-O-R-M-O-U-S-E, Dor- that's Dormouse or Dormice. They're different species. All right, so all I have a fact so of trivia. That's, yeah, that's all we got. All Let's right. keep it moving. All right, here we go. So box office. So Scrooge was released on November 23rd, 1988 in 1,262 theaters. On an estimated budget of $32 million, it grossed $59.5 million domestically. The film opened in the number one position at the U.S. box office, but dropped to number two the following week. It did stay in the top ten for another five weeks. Scrooge was the 13th highest grossing movie domestically in the United States. Moving on to reviews. I kind of hinted to this a little bit. When growing up in the late 80s, we'd watch at the movies with Siskel and Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of Scrooge was split. Gene found Murray to be hilarious and loved the relationship between Murray and Karen Allen. Roger felt as if the film had no warmth and was full of anger, as you mentioned. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 69%, and it has an IMDb rating of 6.9. And then even though uh, Gene gave it a thumbs up, he said it was a reluctant thumbs It was like one of those middling thumbs up. So it wasn't strong. Roger did not like that movie at all. Yeah, he, he skewered it a bit. But I agree with both of them. Because I, I, again, I also loved Bill Murray and Karen Allen's relationship and their chemistry. Mm-hmm. 
But I agree with uh, Ebert that, yeah, yeah, it's just angry and mean-spirited. All right, so let's move on to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have for Scrooged? Bill Bant, what does IBC stand for? Oh, you know what? I have no idea. That's a good question. <laughs> I still Was it like International Broadcast Company? Something Broadcast Company, I assume. Right. But I kept looking in the movie, and I watched it twice. I'm like, what does IBC stand for? Oh. I Googled it, and I, I don't know. I was just getting random hmm. associations with IBC you know, root beer. Right. <laughs> All right. Jason, do you have a holiday movie that's become an annual must watch? A great question for me. Or even a TV show. Not TV show, but Die Hard for sure. Okay. Then usually The Empire Strikes Back is playing on cable somewhere around the holiday. I'm not sure why that particular film. Maybe it's. The snow-covered planet of Hoth that uh, Christmas all year round reminds people, yeah, okay. right? <laughs> um, but that seems to be on television. It could be the Star, the original Star Wars trilogy, and as in general, is usually on television around the holiday. But um, those two films, and then I mean, as far as holiday films, planes, trains, and automobiles is definitely a, a good one for Thanksgiving. I can't honestly say I've watched it every year, but I have at times watched it to ring in the holiday. Okay. How about you? Well, right now I'm going through a, the Bishop's wife phase with uh, Cary Grant, and David Niven. Wow. Yeah. It's old uh, black and white. And it's about David Niven plays this priest and he's trying to raise funds for a new church and he asks for help. And so Cary Grant plays the angel who is sent to help him. And he ends up falling in love with the priest's wife and priest is so focused on trying to get the money for the for the church that he realizes he's made this mistake and then has to turn and, and basically fight back for his wife so i don't know i love it it's just an old very old classic uh movie but yeah last four or five years i've been watching it every christmas eve before that gotcha. was elf was That's my great man. elf That's was my cool. go-to cool mm, i thought maybe you were gonna say it's a wonderful life that's a huge go-to for a lot of people yeah, that yeah, that was that was a, that was probably like two decades ago. That was my go-to. Or what's the other the other uh, miracle on Thirty Fourth Street? Thirty Fourth Street, sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, neither one of those works. I, I like them, but I'm not. Yeah, yeah, those are very traditional. Uh, speaking of holiday films, well, do you have a favorite A Christmas Carol adaptation? There are many film adaptations. Now, personally, I can vaguely remember like the Muppets version from 1992. There was the Robert Zemeckis one, which I have seen from 2009, starring Jim Carrey uh, doing the voice of Scrooge, which has that weird Polar Express type animation. Oh, yeah. There's also the the George C. Scott version from 1984. There's a a few different versions. Patrick Stewart did a version. Yep. Do you have a favorite or one that you remember watching fondly or some uh, different version you've seen recently? I might go Muppets. Because yeah, I remember, I mean, oh, God, I'm a huge Muppet fan, and I was devastated, devastated when Jim Hansen passed away. That was mm-hmm. one of those that crushed me. And so this was the first movie that they made after he passed. And we were at UM, and I can't remember what the theater was across the street from campus. And it was playing oh, there. Yeah. Oh, Might have been Jenny Work and Julie Walesa. And there's the one scene where Kermit is 
taking Robin, who's supposed to be playing Tiny Tim, and they're going home. I started crying. I started crying because I was like, God, that should be Jim Henson doing this, not someone else. And I think even the person mm-hmm. that was that was doing Robin had passed away too. So both of the main performance for those characters had passed. That hit me hard. It really did. Sure. And it was rough. Wow. Okay. But it was weird too because here I am, two friends, and I'm like, I'm like crying. I'm like, oh, they can't see me cry. They can't see me cry. You know. <laughs> so it was one. Of those, like you're just trying to turn and and try to wipe away tears without them seeing. And just be like, why are you crying during a Muppet movie? So much dust in this theater. Yeah, exactly. God, they got a red for allergies. Yep. It's the season. I ugh, And I remember it actually being cold when we left. It was actually one of the few cold floors because it was so late into December. Mm. It was probably during finals, finals week. And we went and no one else wanted to go because they were studying. I'm like, ah, I'm going to go see the movie because I love the Muppets. That's great. That's a funny, interesting, strange Miami memory. I love it. Here we go. Quick, funny story for you, Bill Bant. Okay. This is one of those weird, like, kind of like, here's the spiritual side of me always saying, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be because things happen like this where it's kind of meant to be for whatever reason. I watched this movie yesterday and was mulling over my initial reactions while driving in the car. In particular, some of those scenes with the great Bobcat Goldthwait portraying Elliot Loudermilk. When my friend Isabella, shout out to Isabella, sends me a text which contains a funny clip on Twitter from the show Loudermilk, starring Ron Livingston. Coincidence? That's bizarre. I think not. Are you kidding me? Like, because the funny thing is I'm thinking about those scenes and I'm like, that's a unique name. It is a name, Loudermilk, but uh, it made me think of the show directed by one of the Fairley brothers with Ron Livingston in it. And if you've ever seen it, it's actually quite good and very funny. And Ron Livingston is great. And then she texts me that and I'm like, what? How? Why? Random. Very random. Or not random. I don't know. Very weird. Thought I'd share that. That's cool. All right. Anything else for thoughts and questions? Does Grace get her Christmas bonus? Yes. Well, she gets a raise, too, I think. I think he mentions it. That she's getting a raise. Okay. See? Damn it. I watched the movie twice, and I don't know how I missed that. I'm trying to remember when he says that. No, oh, he probably does. I just, I guess I wasn't paying attention. It's got to be in somewhere in the ramblings or the improv. I don't know. And, uh, yeah, my, I was just being stupid here with my last one. How much time does Elliot Loudermilk get for holding people hostage with a shotgun? Oh, man. Or do they collectively have the Christmas spirit and decide not to press charges? Exactly. See, yeah, if he just went in and just said, put the camera on and just watch what happens, and then they would just pick up on it, and then you don't need to hold the gun up anymore. Yeah, he just shows up, and they're all like, Elliot, you're here. Why? How? What happened? He's like, right. I'm back. I got hired again. Mm-hmm. Just watch now. Yeah. He's changed. He's different. But it's just, it's so, so over the top. Right. Rice would press charges. Yeah. <laughs> unless he unless he falls in love with the uh, woman from I was going to say does he press charges against Elliot or or against the the woman who's the censor that yeah. basically molests him as he's tied <laughs> in the miss using the mistletoe as an excuse to smooch him all right that's all i got that's all i got all right so let's move on to our rating so on a scale of 1 to 5 dormice with antlers what do you give scrooged our Wonderful door mice. I love it. I, I give this 2.5 door mice. 
it's got the makings of something here. It's got all uh, so many cameos, so many wonderful actors in this. It's good to see their faces. I do like the female protagonists in this film, Karen Allen and Alfre Woodard. The Christmas spirit is to be found in certain scenes, especially the end, as we've talked about a few times with Calvin, the young boy, coming in and tugging at our heartstrings. But they missed the mark, in my humble opinion, with the comedy here. Uh, And this is supposed to be a comedy. They made a choice, and they took a big swing with the darker element, the darker take on this classic tale, and it just didn't work for me. So uh, it's interesting, Bill, you'd mentioned earlier that you could see yourself watching this in different pieces or that maybe if you caught a scene at a certain time on television, on cable what or whatnot, uh, you'd watch uh, that particular scene. But watching it straight through for an hour and 40 minutes was, it's just, it was a kind of an off-putting, not disturbing, but off-putting experience for me watching it now. Not sure what the tone was supposed to be here. It's a a little bit uh, even random, has a randomness to it. And uh, yeah, so I thought it was just okay. 2.5 for me. Yeah, I thought going into this, I was going to give it a three. But then after discussing and then just even thinking about it while we're going through this, I'm I'm with you. I'm at 2.5. Okay. The problem is the person that the reason I'm watching this movie is because it's Bill Murray and right. I'd rather watch everybody else. And I was thinking, all right, if I have two Bill Murray movies, I have Groundhog Day and I have Scrooge. What am I watching? Groundhog Day. If I have this in Ghostbusters, what am I watching? Ghostbusters. If I have this in Stripes, what am I watching? Stripes. Meatballs. I'm watching Meatballs instead. There's there's just too many other movies of his that I would rather watch than this one or way too many other holiday movies I would watch instead of this one. But like I said, there's a lot of people out here that love this movie. And that's fine. I don't, I mean, can't I don't disregard have, that. No, I don't have an this issue with that. This is a cult f- classic, or if, I wouldn't even say cult classic. It's a it, No, it's not a cult classic. Mm-hmm. It is a classic. It's a holiday favorite for so many. Right. And I think that's a, ma- I think that's a matter of taste. It's just, uh, it's just a matter of opinion. That's all mm-hmm. for, for a lot of people. You know? Right. And that's, you know, that's the one thing I think I like about movies is yeah you know you're going to disagree about it but it's not a i'm going to throw punches because you love screwed and i don't just like okay i you know just explain to me what you like about it and i'm i'm cool with that or um because like i said i i thought everybody else was really good i enjoyed the special effects i thought they were cool i thought they're still well done i thought they um i know we like to say oh they don't hold up but no i thought they they still hold up but the central character just doesn't do it for me and uh it was tough. Yeah, I think you really just have to watch it. For me, I just have to watch it in pieces. I can't I can't watch it from start to finish. You know, it's even fun. What's funny is that we didn't even mention the fact that Danny Elfman did the score for this. Oh, I know. And we're both huge Danny Elfman fans. And the, again, just not one of his more memorable scores. It's good music, but that's the thing about this movie. It's just strangely not the most memorable not going to beat it up. I don't need to beat it up any further because I actually was going to, th- I was thinking about where do, would you rank this amongst Bill Murray films? And you've already answered that question for the most part. It's just not top tier Bill Murray mm-hmm. for, for us, but Hey, you love it. You love it. Mentioned Jenny Elfman because I'd like, well, he does a better version of holiday music with a nightmare before Christmas hmm. or even some of the stuff from Edward Scissorhands. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Is better. 
All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode and season two. Wow. I would like to take this moment to thank everyone that took the time to listen to an episode this season. Uh, we appreciate it so much. Thanks for your emails, reviews, and tweets. Jason and I love talking about movies, and the fact that you join us for these conversations is amazing. You know, we're looking forward to season three and uh, even making better episodes. So um, I can't say thank you enough. As always, please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at all80smoviespodcast. Catch us on TikTok at all80smoviespodcast. Or tweet us at podcastall80s. In our next episode, we'll be recapping Season 2, and we'll be giving you a preview of Season 3. That will be out sometime next month. We hope you join us again. Happy holidays, and we'll see you next year. Wow. That pretty much sums it up, and congratulations, Bill Bant. It's been uh, an honor and a privilege to be able to do this with you. You know, we do this because we love the entertainment of the 80s films and the nostalgic attachments, etc., but we do it also because we do it because we want to entertain and we wouldn't be doing it if it weren't for those listeners out there and you make this work for us and i'd like to thank our family and friends and loved ones and again yes the listeners for all of your support we couldn't do it without you with any without any of you so you make it worthwhile thanks for all the love and support and feedback so yeah really looking forward to next year uh, more guest hosts and hopefully surprises and who knows what we'll have in store but uh, it'll be exciting be safe be healthy be happy enjoy this holiday season it's christmas eve it's it's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer we we, we smile a little easier we we cheer a little more for a couple of hours out of the whole year we are the people that we always hoped we would be Thanks for staying up with us. Good night.